The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I'm really excited about today's episode because I have enlisted the number one debate coach in the country, Adam Torson. But what he's talking about is how we can raise rigorous critical thinkers and authentic moral citizens at a time when we are struggling as adults to understand how to make sense of the information that we get, how to be in conversation, even when it's difficult, even when we disagree, and what exactly our moral obligation is when it comes to raising critical thinkers and being critical thinkers. My favorite thing that Adam Torson said is that thinking well is a moral responsibility. So this episode is taking the tools from the art of debate and translating them into how we can use them in our everyday experiences with our teens, with our children, and as we move through the world. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to write a little review, give a five-star rating, let me know your favorite part. And of course, you can DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast and let me know if you have follow-up questions. Tell me what you're thinking about. I think this particular topic is more important than ever. And I was so honored to be able to have this conversation with Adam Torson. I am so lucky to have access to this incredible debate coach. And I so wanted to share that access with all of you. I just want to frame this conversation around the fact that you've been working with adolescents to cultivate this skill of being debaters, but we're going to get into the real skills for many years. And I just am convinced that if everybody had access to thinking the way that you have and the way that you've been working with kids, that it would change the story. And right now the story is I have been receiving countless questions about how we can raise adolescents to really think critically and to understand how to receive information and to try to figure out what is truth, what is post-truth, what is real, what is imagined, what is bias, what is not, what kind of bias, all of the things that I think you beautifully have trained and supported and guided these debaters to do. So can you just talk us through what skills you're building and how in the world we can translate that in our day-to-day interactions if our kids are not debaters? Yeah, for sure. So in debate, the students are given a topic that's usually some combination of a question of public policy, what the government should do, and some question of morality or justice. And the sort of secret sauce to that is that they are expected to, first of all, support their opinions with evidence, and second of all, to argue for both sides at one time or another. And that combination of features is kind of the secret sauce. So we could talk about a lot of different skills that debate helps to build. So all sorts of oral and written communication skills. The kids have to spend a lot of time doing research. And so they build those skills. But I think the core of it and the thing that is a little harder to understand until they've done it is that they build 
not just the ability, but the habit of engaging in rigorous and critical thinking. And there are a variety of reasons debate allows them to do that. Of course, there is a sort of competitive incentive to the kids that are participating, but also the sort of gamification of argumentation, as obnoxious as that might be to some of our students' parents, nevertheless, lets them yes. intellectually <laughs> experiment in a way that, you know, that forces them to see both sides in a way that's not personalized or injected with their individual identity or their sense of moral indignation. And I think that that's one of the reasons we see people argue and disagree so badly is that so much in our society encourages people to automatically associate opinions that they don't know that much about with their sort of personal identity and their sense of outrage and morality. I'm a big believer that this course on social media drives that, I guess, modality of argumentation. And debate is kind of the anti that because they have to argue both sides and they have to present um, evidence for both sides, which means, and, you know, nobody's going to take it personally because everybody has to be on both sides at one time or another. So I guess that's, that's where I would say as a starting point is that necessity to be on both sides and the like non-personalization of individual opinions is what gets them there. The danger in that is that we don't want them to become just sort of sophists that they can argue, you know, either side, no matter what, and they don't really have a personal opinion. So, you know, that's about the culture of your team and the way that you coach. But I don't really find that our students adopt that mindset. In fact, I sort of find that the opposite, that their ability to understand their own perspectives more deeply and from both sides actually strengthens their core convictions rather than undermining them. So I have a question. My daughter said to me recently that she wanted to look at something in a way that in a perspective that she learned through debate, which was assume the other side of the argument is completely accurate Mm -hmm. and go from there. And it was like such an interesting, generous interpretation. And I just wanted to learn a little bit more about that. Once she walked me through it, it was actually incredibly effective. What did she mean? Can you explain sure. that? So one of the one of the primary dangers in argumentation, especially when we're doing it in a way that's trying to sort of defend our ego or our pre-existing position, is to give an ungenerous or the least helpful interpretation of the other person's argument. Like with the goal, you know, in that situation, we think of the goal of arguing is trying to win the argument rather than trying to come to the best position possible. So we call that a straw man fallacy when we give someone else's argument a, a weak interpretation on purpose. So we're always on guard against that. Oh, that's a straw man. That's not the strongest version of my argument. So the first thing is debate is always encouraging us to keep an eye out for that fallacy. The second thing is there are argumentative tools that happen in debate for when our opponents are making good arguments. So debate topics are designed to be debatable. And just like in the real world, when there's a controversial topic, there usually are good reasons for both sides. And this is sort of, you know, one of the core skills of debate is the sort of perspective taking. What would it feel like to be a person who holds this belief that's different than mine? So one of the ways we do that is to just ask ourselves that question, like, what is the strongest version of this argument? Even if that argument were completely true, would I have a plausible response to it if I'm defending the other side? So for example, one argumentation construct that's used in debate is called weighing, in which you say, even though your argument is true, the argument that I'm offering is more important than that because it affects more people or it happens sooner or it's more probable, things like this. So we think about both giving our our opponent's argument the strongest possible construction and how do we address that argument in its strongest form by comparing the relative strengths of our arguments or things like that. Like, let's say you have have an audience of teenagers who are not debaters. Mm -hmm. 
and you can give them five tips. <laughs> I was going to say 10. <laughs> you can give them five tips to assess whether or not the information that they're consuming is reliable mm -hmm. information. What would you say? How do you guide the kids basically to do the research so that they can come up with their arguments for either side of a discussion? Sure. Okay, so five tips. Let's see. So I guess a place that I will start with, this is debate one when I teach seventh graders or ninth graders new debate. We sort of ban the word bias. And we also try to problematize the idea that some pieces of information are reliable or unreliable. Is this a reliable source or an unreliable source? And instead, try to get them to think about the information that they're consuming on a spectrum of reliability, and then talk about what sort of indicia of more reliable sources are and what indicia of less reliable sources are. So, for example, we tend to think about peer-reviewed academic journals as sort of the gold standard. But the reason that we do that is the authors are experts, so they have lots of background in the subject and lots and years of training on it. The publications go through a process of peer review, which means that other people who are experts are pushing on some of those conclusions and ideally fact-checking and making sure that those conclusions are sound and that the author's sort of reputation is at stake in publishing it. And those are all indicia that it should be reliable. Now, if we're talking about, uh, instead of that, a periodical like a newspaper, well, some of those indicia are still there, right? The author's reputation is on the line. Newspaper has editorial policies. There's hopefully fact-checking, but there's also not years of expertise on you know, being brought to bear. It's the, the usually newspaper articles are commenting on things that just happened. So there's not as much time for reflection, et cetera. So like, those are things that lead us to believe that like a newspaper, a major metropolitan newspaper is a reliable source. It's not as reliable as a peer reviewed journal, but it's more reliable than a blog post or a piece of advertising or something like that. So that's the first thing is thinking about reliability in terms of a a spectrum based on what are the sort of underlying indicators that something might be a reliable source. That's the first thing. The second thing is we talk a lot about academic tone. Is the author trying to incite a, an emotional response in you? Is there a lot of rhetoric? Or is the goal to persuade you, by which I mean to convince you that they have the best reasons to believe what they're trying to get you to believe? So we distinguish right away, day one of debate, between an argument and an assertion. And I define for the kids that the idea that an assertion is a forceful statement of fact or belief, and an argument is an assertion supported by reasons. So an assertion, in other words, is I believe it, and an argument is, and you should believe it too, and here are the reasons why. So that means that more reliable information tends to look like someone trying to convince you that their reasons are strong rather than that you should feel emotionally outraged or that, you know, like a morally righteous person would believe this. And often that means doing things that you wouldn't expect, like raising the best objections to your position, right? So some people are going to say this about my argument, and that can be persuasive or true, but here's why I think that my view nevertheless prevails. So I guess that's the, the second thing is looking for academic tone or someone that's trying to offer reasons for what they believe rather than, you know, assert that on their own authority or on your moral sort of wisdom that it should be true. I guess a third thing is to be cognizant of the sort of motivation of a source in particular. In the olden days, we used to talk about this in terms of like, you know, we need to be skeptical of studies that are funded by industry, things like that, which is all good information and still stuff that kids 
um, should think about. But the main way that we're skeptical of a source's motivations now probably comes from the amount of information that kids get from social media, which for a lot of kids is almost everything. It's really important for the kids to understand that what they're being shown on social media is driven by the social media companies need to make money off of that content, right? Which means that they have no incentive to make the information accurate and every incentive to make the information engaging. And the content producers have figured this out. So there's lots of good reason to believe that just sky blue wrong arguments spread like wildfire faster than true information via social media, just because that's what the algorithms are feeding to students. And of course, there's this dynamic of like, the more you hear it or the more you see it, the more plausible that it seems to our mind's eye. So that, I guess, is the third thing is just to be skeptical of what our sources sort of motivations are, and in particular, for that to be the case when something is fed to us on social media. And now a word from my sponsor, Mustella, who for over 70 years, Mustella has been helping parents care for their families with clean and gentle skincare that's respectful of people and the planet. With decades of dermatologic research and ethically sourced natural ingredients behind the formulas, you can feel good about what you're putting on your baby's skin. It's a French family-owned brand, and we just know that they have higher standards for what gets put on our skin, frankly. Proud to be B Corp certified, baby skincare experts, Mustela's key ingredient is avocado, which helps protect and hydrate skin. And Mustela uses an average of 97% natural ingredients in their products. What I love is that they now have this organic brand that they didn't have before. What I love that they now have an organic product they didn't have when I had littles. And just the smell of Mustela reminds me of babies. I love it. By the way, I still use Mustela today. They have a micellar water that is for the face and body. It's fragrance-free no rinse needed, and has aloe vera and olive oil. Yes, it's a vegan formula for littles, but I use it for me. Visit mustellausa.com and use the code HUMANS at checkout for 15% off your first order. That's M-U-S-T-E-L-A-U-S-A.com. Okay, now a word from my sponsor, Tapouts, which is an interactive coaching program that teaches kids important life skills so they can handle things like feelings of anxiety, social pressures, social media, and more. When you sign up, your child will join a pod of similar aged peers for interactive expert-led group coaching sessions online once a week for 30 minutes. So through games and activities, Kids ages 4 to 16 progressively learn skills like how to express feelings and how to socialize. It's an awesome place for kids to talk about their feelings and gain the confidence and tools they need to face problems in their day-to-day life. More than 25,000 families actually swear by tapouts, and 77% of parents say their child was less stressed after 16 weeks. Plus, 93% of kids said that sessions were actually fun which keeps them coming back each week and engaged in the learning. Visit tapouts.com to take the free assessment today. You'll get $50 off your first session with the code HUMANS on tapouts.com. That's T-A-P-O-U-T-S.com. Use the code HUMANS for $50 off your first session. T-A-P-O-U-T-S.com. 
Use the code HUMANS for $50 off your first session. Oh boy, let's see. I'm on three tips. I need to get to five. Let's see. They're really good though. <laughs> I'm glad it's helpful. Oh yeah, I guess I would say this too. Like one of the main things that our, our students sort of valorize the idea that you could find or an answer to something quickly and the sort of tools at their disposal have led them to believe that information should just be at your fingertips, right? That the world should be Wikipedia. But with complicated questions, it's just not. And so some of it is the idea that having a good understanding of something requires just time and reflection. And so that means they have to be gathering information from multiple sources. That means they have to be thinking about it in different ways. And the same thing that they're doing in the debate round is the thing they should be doing mentally when they're consuming information, which is what's the other side going to say about this? How could I challenge this information or where, or where am I skeptical of it? So the, one of the main challenges in critical thinking is confirmation bias, that we're always looking for things that we already agree with. I don't have to tell you about that as a psychology expert. And so we have to train ourselves to, instead of looking for things that we already agree with, look for things that we disagree with or ways that we might disagree with. And, and, and that's you know a core part of debate training is just that built-in skepticism about the source. And let's see, another tip for making sure that we're consuming reliable information. Well, I guess the last thing I would say is just to be skeptical of certainty. So we talk about forming our beliefs in the way that a scientist supports or forms a hypothesis, that the more evidence that we have in favor of our belief, the more confidence we should have in it, but that we should always be looking for ways to disconfirm that belief rather than ways to confirm. I guess it's the same thing I just said. But that disposition that our views are always subject to question, and I'm never 100% certain of it, I'm always trying to find out more and and, and I guess the, the part I want to get to is that I can always change my mind, right? That, that I can say ahead of time, so this is why I believe what I believe. The flip side of that is what piece of evidence would cause me to change my belief? And if there is no piece of evidence that would cause me to change my belief, that is an indication that what I think is ideological or that is not predicated on evidence. Because if my belief is based on evidence, then when the evidence comes in on, for the other side, I should change my mind. And that sort of willingness to change your mind I think is characteristic of a rigorous and critical thinker, certainly of a good debater. A rigorous and critical thinker has a real appreciation for what they don't yet understand and, and, understand, and knows that like having a little bit of information doesn't make you an expert on it, but can make us feel more confident. This is another psychology concept you'll be familiar with, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? That oftentimes when we get a little bit of information, we feel like we're a lot more confident in something than we are. And the more deeply we study it, the less certain that we feel about it. It's something that debaters experience a lot on just about every topic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess that's the piece of like, when I'm starting from scratch, I have to know that my level of confidence on something should be like a rational person's confidence on a subject that they start by knowing nothing about should be linear, right? Like we should feel less confidence at the beginning and more over time. And therefore we want our research process to reflect that, not just like what do, you know, am I looking for ways to disconfirm my pre-existing view, the understanding that I'm just going to have to consume a lot of information before I can feel confident in my conclusions. And it's a familiar experience to every debater that, you know, a month or two into the topic, you find an argument that you just never thought of before that maybe changes your, your view holistically of the topic. So that trespasses a little bit on the point I made earlier, but the idea that it just takes time and reflection to come to valid rigorous conclusions rather than you know, being able to Google the answer and it's in your head in five seconds, like just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So when you're sitting with the debate team, do you find that there are certain topics that you bring up where everybody 
snaps to their initial judgment. Is there any use in saying, okay, you don't know anything about this. Where do you think you stand? And then going from there to search? Or does that undermine the process of critical thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's usually good for people to check in with themselves about their own pre-existing beliefs for the sake of being able to consciously, you know, seek out disconfirming information. I, I always want to, you know, we're fortunate with debate topics. They tend to be built to be disputable. So a lot of times the students, you know, it, it's not uncommon for students to have an intuition on the topic, but I, I think it's relatively rare for students to have such a strong conviction that they think, oh, gee, I could never be persuaded otherwise. Although, you know, I imagine from time to time, I mean, I guess with adolescence, I think the main danger of this, and it's not just adolescence, it's all of us, right, is when there is social status tied to holding a particular belief, then I think we have to be most right. worried about it or most worried about that confirmation bias. So, yeah, I mean, debaters are, are sort of trained. I mean, I mean, like, I, I don't find very much that debaters are subject to a lot of peer pressure about their beliefs, at least within the context of the team, because they're so trained to dispute or disagree or play the devil's advocate. I mean, the, the thing that they more often find is that their friends or their parents are not nearly as comfortable with disagreements as they are. They have to yeah. learn, you know, how to disagree with with folks who don't disagree for sport without, you know, giving offense or hurting people's feelings or those <laughs> kinds of things. But within the debate culture, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there are issues. I mean, I, I, it sounds a little too smug to say that there's not peer pressure about opinions. I'm sure that there there is. But I do think we've got the best set of tools in place to help kids like feel good about being able to disagree or test out new ideas in that sort of context. So what do you tell them when there's something going on where you know that it might be trendy to have one opinion or another, and you know that their peers don't have the same kind of training that they have? Yeah. How do you, what are some questions that you ask them or that they can ask their peers to be engaged in really interesting conversations and maybe not in the way that they have comfort with disagreement in their, in the bubble of debate. This comes up a fair amount in particular, like, I don't know if this speaks to all of us, but like this most often comes up in the context of the kids that are disagreeing with some school policy. And there's some adult at my door saying like, Hey, these kids seem to feel pretty strongly about this. Can you calm them down a little bit? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I really want to calm them down that much, but anyway, so here are some of the things we said. So the first is, and this is different. This is sometimes different than they have to be with each other. But the first thing I tell them is just to not reflexively disagree, right? Sometimes we call this strategic listening. Like even if you know that this person is expressing a view that you're ultimately going to disagree with, they're absolutely not going to listen to you if the first thing you do is jump down their throats and you've got your 10 arguments that you're going to make against them. So there's some strategic listening. I heard a good piece of wisdom the other day that was something like, before expressing disagreement, ask at least three questions about why the person believes what they're going to believe or why they're going to say what they're going to say. So, And people will perceive that it's more personal if you're reflexively disagreeing rather than listening to them. So engaging in strategic listening, that's one thing. The second thing is that when they disagree, I encourage them to remember that criticism is likely to be more impactful if they, first of all, start by expressing that they share their interlocutor's values in some way, and secondarily, by expressing their own uncertainty about the topic, right? So it's like, yeah, I understand that, you know, you it's really important to you that this happened in the school, and I agree with that. And, and you know, I don't know for sure what the answer to this is, but here's why I come at it from a different perspective. And if they sort of start with that, 
acknowledgement. It's a more of an invitation to a conversation rather than a contest about like whose ego is going to win because I'm, they have the right side of the position. Third thing I tell them is it's a good idea not to offer criticism without having some alternative in mind. This, you know, sometimes happens in the context of school programming, but it also, you know, comes up with in any other context that if they just, you know, they're pretty quick to spot flaws or errors in reasoning in their opponent's arguments because that's they're in their in in the person with whom they're speaking's arguments because that's in their training. But like if sometimes because they disagree for sport, they get into the habit of just sort of disagreeing for disagreement's sake, as opposed to like, okay, but what's your view on this then? Like, what is the alternative to this if you disagree with this person's point of view? So off making sure that we have an alternative in mind when we're offering criticism of someone's view. And then the last thing I I just try to re- encourage them to do is that like debate is, you know, offers a structure of argumentation for promoting our rigorous and critical thinking skills. So we get used to arguing, but it's just not the case that in every context being right is the most important thing or winning out over the other person is the most important thing. It might be the case that being kind to someone doesn't mean just like crushing their view in that given moment. That's, I try to strike a balance about that, that like, you know, I'm not asking them to compromise things that are important to them or to compromise their thinking on something for the sake of kindness. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's that can be unkind or disrespectful to just sort of pat someone on the head and say, you know, oh, you're, you know, poor you, you know, you just don't think well enough to, to have a different view than this. But to remember that in any given context, especially when emotions are running high, it might be the case that you don't have to win the debate in that moment with your, you know, with your friend on the school bus or whatever. And that, you know, you might serve other values like kindness by choosing a different course in that moment, or you might just do well to play a longer game, right? And we actually know that from studies of persuasion in every other context in political persuasion, et cetera, that like you're unlikely to get somebody in a disagreement to say, you're right, I changed my opinion 180 degrees today. But if you engage the conversation correctly, real persuasion looks like maybe you planted a seed and their view evolves a little bit and you can show that your view has evolved a little bit and that over time that bears fruit. So that's kind of how I think about translating debate skills for debaters, you know, outside of the debates and think about a, a you know, broader context. And now a word from my sponsor, Life Straw. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions to drink more water. I am one of those people and stay healthier. But have you thought about upgrading the actual water you're drinking. I know you trust your water filter pitcher to make tap safe to drink, but is it really doing anything? Most filters actually can't remove gross contaminants like bacteria, parasites, PFAS, and microplastics. I know, it's not great news. But Life Straw Home is a kitchen upgrade you'll wish you made years ago. It's the only water pitcher that filters out over 30 contaminants, including bacteria, microplastics, and PFAS, and it makes your water actually taste better. I am not even a person who likes the taste of water. Truly, truly, I I make a resolution to drink more water every year and I fail. But Life Straw, actually, I don't know, it tastes crisper and it just feels like this is clean. This feels good. Most importantly, Life Straw fights for our planet and gives back. For every pitcher sold, a child in need receives a year of safe water. Over 9 million kids to date. That is a company I can get behind. Better filtration, better taste, better design. LifeStraw home products can be found at lifestraw.com and on Amazon. 
better filtration, better taste, better design. LifeStraw home products can be found at lifestraw.com and on Amazon. This is an ad for NerdWallet. Do you know how much cash back you're leaving on the table settling for the wrong credit card? Imagine earning up to 5% cash back on your groceries for the next 30 years. Think of all that cash back on chicken dinos. Okay, so NerdWallet helps everyone make smarter financial decisions today. The future you will say thank you. With NerdWallet, you won't regret missing out on rewards. NerdWallet lets you compare smart cashback credit cards side by side to make the most of your everyday spending. So what could future you do with more cashback? A getaway without the kids? Sorry, kids. A spa day yourself? Whatever it is, make it happen with a smarter cashback credit card. So don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, saving accounts, and more today on nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms do apply. What are we missing? Like, if this is debate 101 conversation for the real world, like for taking the skills and applying them, mm. what do you think it is about your coaching and way of relating to these adolescents that gets them listening is part one of my question. And part two is you really talk a lot about morality. Like th- mm-hmm. there's there's no getting around that in your conversations. Yeah. I think that's very bold and, and it's really moved the kids to think this yeah. way. So I guess I want to know how you're approaching them and how do you get them to come to a conclusion, not just when we're talking about, you know, because it's not just about winning the argument, as you said, but they're also, their moral compass is currently being very strongly built. Well, that it's kind of you to say, I appreciate that. So a few things I think about in this context. The first is that, Again, I benefit from being a debate coach in that intrinsically, one of the things that we're teaching them is skepticism of authority. So it jibes with what they want to do to begin with, right? And that means that I get some credibility automatically as someone saying, no, you're right to be skeptical of that authority, right? Like, let's think about that, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, well, and and, and beyond that, it forces you, if you're teaching that in good faith, to encourage them to question your own authority. And, you know, you have to be saying things like, I might not be right on this, or I've changed my mind about this, or, you know, this is what I think, but you should, you know, you can feel free to disagree with that. I mean, I think every debate coach is familiar with that basic move, right? That they, you can't say question all authorities, except I'm the unquestioned authority on everything, right? And that, you know, hopefully opens up room for them, A, to feel like they can, I I guess it, it gives you a certain degree of credibility, when you acknowledge that your worldview might not be perfect. This is part of our deeper sort of philosophy. I don't know that I would ascribe this necessarily to debate, though I think it jives with debate. So we talk a lot about what it means to be thoughtful, what it means to be a thoughtful person. And one of the sort of, one of the things I talk to the kids about is that, look, like the fact that there's so much uncertainty built into the world, that the way we engage these topics proves that like we don't have all the answers and it's hard to figure out the answers and that sometimes things that everybody thinks might be wrong. And there's something about that, that while it's very freeing, it's also very scary, right? Like what are the answers to the really fundamental questions and how do I be a person in the world where, where the answers aren't that obvious? And the thing I try to communicate to them is that 
that imbues them with a lot of responsibility, right? The ability to think rigorously and critically isn't just about the ability to come to correct factually true conclusions, but is also about their ability to figure out the really important questions in their life. What are they going to do with, how are they going to be towards each other and what, what projects are they going to pursue? So, I mean, when we talk about like, oh, there's a lot of sort of morality in that. I mean, I think that's where it comes from. It's automatically, I think that rigorous and critical thinking is fundamentally about who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And therefore it has to be moral. When we have taught them this skepticism that imbues them with a certain moral responsibility to work hard to figure out what's right and what's how they ought to be in the world. One of the things I advocate for as a culture of the debate community, and isn't always the case, is, is, is that a danger is sophistry. The idea that instruments just become sort of instruments of power that enable us to get what we want in the world and like win arguments and therefore like a, like achieve and accomplish positions. And I really encourage the students to try to think differently about that, to not be so cynical and instead to imagine that their ability to think well about things is their tool to living a life that feels authentic and meaningful to them rather than just predicated on the pursuit of what in psychology speak, we might call external validation, or we might otherwise characterize as the things that we could pursue power, money, et cetera. And the thing that I suggest to them is that this is probably too philosophical, but just like the sort of Socratic love of wisdom, the examined life isn't just going to be, is going to feel authentic to them in a way that the pursuit of those external goals isn't going to. And so I guess that's another moral valence on critical thinking is it's just how to be an authentic person is to think well. And there's a sense in which folks who can't think well, can't think rigorously and critically are not very free because they're just subject to other people's opinions. They're in the thrall of what other people tell them about the world. And the ability to make that decision for yourself and the responsibility to make those decisions for yourself, I think puts into focus the importance of not just being thoughtless, the importance of not just going with the crowd or not just accepting respect, you know, received opinion. One of the formative books for me was Hannah Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, reports on the banality of evil. And you'll be familiar with the thesis of this book, which describes the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was a high-ranking Nazi official, largely responsible for the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. And he was able to evade capture at the end of the war, was in um, Argentina when agents of the relatively newly formed state of Israel tracked him down, captured him, brought him back to Israel to stand trial for crimes against humanity. And Hannah Arendt, who was a um, political philosopher and journalist who had fled Germany, covered the trial for the New Yorker. And her, the, her articles later became the book Eichmann in Jerusalem. And the interesting contrast that she drew was the idea that the prosecution in that case depicted Eichmann as sort of fundamentally evil, evil in a radical way that you might associate with a sort of mystical other, you know. Not human character, right? Exactly, exactly. Sort of a religious understanding of evil. And Arendt's, you know, admittedly controversial conclusion was that really wasn't what it seemed like at all, that he, that in his interactions with trial staff, with his family and friends, he seemed more or less normal, that he had, you know, a dozen psychologists testified that he had a healthy relationship to his family and his friends, that he would never have, for example, you know, killed a superior to inherit his post. He wasn't some sort of psychopath. And the, the tension there, a lot of people read that as excusing Eichmann, which of course it's not, the point is not to do. The point is, how could a, someone who's otherwise morally normal, just by following the rules, become, you know, one of the greatest criminals in recorded history? And, and, and Arendt concludes that book by 
arguing that Eichmann was properly executed for his crimes. But the, the takeaway of that that we sort of cite is the idea that just following the rules can be a moral disaster, right? So you really do have to be skeptical of the rules and you're responsible for your behavior in a very fundamental way, even when it would be unreasonable to expect you to stand up against accepted opinion, that you're still morally responsible for doing that. And so, you know, for what it's worth, I think that's an impactful message. And I do think that the kids are internalized, that thinking well is a moral responsibility and not just a tool to, you know, do better on a test or speak better in the boardroom or something like that. KiwiCo delivers seriously fun learning for kids of all ages with hands-on projects and activities. Each month, if you have a membership, kids receive crates packed with engaging hands-on activities that are designed to introduce them to exciting science, technology, and art concepts. There's always something new for kids to discover, like engineering robots or learning about the science of ice cream, my favorite. Here's the thing about KiwiCo that I love. I want kids to get bored. I want kids to play with found materials. I also know that what ends up happening with busy, exhausted parents is that sometimes they want a project that their kids can do with directions to follow, materials all there, and something that's exciting enough that it captures their attention without screens. So when those moments happen, you don't need to add more to your plate. You just have a KiwiCo. So now you can redefine learning with play, explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at KiwiCo.com with the promo code RGH. That's 50% off your first month at KiwiCo.com with the promo code RGH. You will love this. It's like freedom guilt-free, and so easy and fun. Okay. Harper Wild is a female-founded, affordable, comfortable bra and underwear line for every occasion. They, as a female-founded brand, believe comfort and style can go hand in hand. And one thing that I just love is that they proudly donate 1% of their proceeds to Girls Inc., which is an awesome organization that provides mentorship and educational programming for girls ages six to 18. It's just giving back and supporting girls. So I got a core collection bra in steel and a core collection underwear in steel. I'm not going to show you that because it's undergarments, but they are so pretty and soft and chic and they just feel super comfortable. That is because they are anti-uniboob supportive with and without wire. They have high quality garments, but with fair pricing. They're great for every body type. Totally recommend them. And I really just love learning about new, awesome businesses run by women. So check it out. Go to harperwild.com slash humans. That's H-A-R-P-E-R-W-I-L-D-E.com slash humans. And use my code humans for 15% off. You are going to love these. They're so soft. What do you say to teenagers about how to make sense of social media as the primary source of news and information for the majority of their peers? 
the tactic I've tried, which I don't know how successful it is because, you know, the whole world's on social media. I try to draw a bit of an, in, an insight. Years ago, I read a study about what the most effective anti-smoking, anti-tobacco advertisements were because most of them are not that effective. And some of the most effective were about how the tobacco companies didn't care if you lived or died and all they want is your money. And are you going to let them exploit you like this? Like, are these, like these corporations that don't care if you live or die? Like, how are you going to not stand up to that? And so I have tried to take a similar tactic to social media, right? Which is the people who sell this, it's not even selling it. The people who produce this product know that it makes you sad, know that it makes you unwell, and they know that it makes you unthoughtful and ignorant, right? In a way that causes you to do real damage to the people around you or to just do sort of moral damage and causing you to come to bad conclusions. And like, you can't, like, are you going to let them do that to you for money, right? Like they're, they're, they're making you sad for money. They're making you ignorant for money. They're making you thoughtless for money. And part of being a thoughtful person means standing up to that and just refusing to understand that like that dopamine hit that you get from that. And, you know, to whatever degree that temporarily feels good comes at the cost of your ability to be thoughtful and happy. And you shouldn't let those companies do that to you, just like you wouldn't take up smoking because you know what it does to you in the long run even if it feels good in the short run. When you asked about talking about moral stuff, but like I, I try really hard and I think a lot, you know, one of the advantages that I have in the nature of my job is that I get to work with kids for a long period of time. So it's different than, you know, I have a kid in a class for a quarter or a year when I'm a classroom teacher. I sometimes, you know, I'll meet a kid when she's 11 or 12 and I get to know them and work with them until they're 18. And what that means is that I can communicate to them my authentic investment in who they are as people in a way that's hard to do ordinarily. I mean, obviously we've got to be, you know, thoughtful about how we do that, but it allows you to start from, if kids are convinced that you're authentically interested in who they are as people and in them being well and in their whole person, then it gives you a lot more credibility to when you talk about, you know, specific things like this, right? So when I talk about social media, they can know that I'm not just like another adult saying the company line on social media, like they know that that's coming from a place of, you know, study and, you know, uncertainty and just like genuine investment in, in who they are. And I think that makes a difference too, that just that they perceive that you're an authentic messenger on the thing that you're trying to communicate to them. I mean, that's a great point to end on too. And it's a little harder for parents, yeah. but in general, if we're authentic messengers and we aren't like coming at them with this agenda where they just can tell out of the gate that it's not really about them as individuals or their particular experience, but it's more just this, you know, like we got to get you off social yeah. media. It's, it just doesn't land as well. So thanks for doing this. I think we all can benefit from learning how debaters learn and, you know, hopefully somebody can join a debate team. I mean, that's another fun thing to try to do. If sure. somebody wants to get their young person involved in debate and it's not readily available at their school, is there like, can you start a debate team? Is that a whole other hundred percent you can. So there are a few things I would think about. So the first is there are a number of great organizations that can help with this. The the big sort of umbrella organization in the United States is the National Speech and Debate Association. And they've got piles of resources for helping you start a team. And I would encourage anybody to try and do that at their own schools to encourage administrators and teachers to participate. There are tons and tons of good resources about that. Second organization that's really good for this is the National Debate Coaches Association, 
which also ha which has a mentorship program and a number of resources for starting programs. And then an organization that's been particularly effective, especially at schools that don't enjoy the kind, you know, that don't enjoy a lot of resources has been an organization called the Urban Debate League. There's a national organization that's the Urban Debate League, and then different cities have Urban Debate Leagues and that go under various names, but they're really fantastic programs, lots of growth and good support for the kids. So I, I like my starting place for anyone that wants to start a program would be to connect with one or more, more than one of those organizations and utilize their resources. And then the second piece of it is just making the case to administrators. There's actually a great new study out from the um, Boston Urban Debate League just in the last couple of days about the incredible academic benefits that come with debate participation. And so my sort of two-pronged pitch usually to administrators or to teachers who are thinking about getting into debate is like, one, we've got just this list of quantifiable outcomes where the kids just do better. They're better readers, they're better researchers, they get into better colleges, they get all that, you know, we could list all of the things. And then my second pitch is the thing that I started with, which is in addition to having all these tools in their tool belt, there's also the intangible of here are these students that now have the habit of being rigorous and critical thinkers. And that's empowering in a way that's hard to capture quantitatively but is the really transformative experience that when kids come out of the other side of their years in competitive debate, they don't just talk about what they can do. They talk about who they became in the course of being a debater. And that's the, the powerful piece. Uh, Mr. Torson, you are such a light in this world. <laughs> and I am so lucky. Look, truly, I, I, I have watched over these years this this is, you really do extraordinary work with adolescents at a time when they are, it is so, like, they are so easily influenced yeah. and and for the be better or for worse. And so, like, what a gift. Wow. 